Hey, I hear you got a bunch of notes to go over. Let's just jump in. All right. Yeah, that sounds good. Today, we're going to be learning about uh, the Soviet war in Afghanistan. Okay. I know nothing. So just just pour it on me. (laughs) I'm ready. All right. Yeah. So this is a big deal in world history. And I feel like it kind of goes underreported. It's just like, oh, yeah, there was a thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, I know nothing about it. Like, that's kind of <laughs> weird. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it kind of falls into that modern history trap because this this happens from 1979 to 1989. So most, you know, world history classes aren't going to get to that point. At, you know, in, in in high school or whatever, you know, you might get it in college if you're, if you're focusing on it also is the thing. <laughs> so most people just won't. I think the furthest I've ever gotten in a high school class was maybe like the 50s, mm-hmm. <laughs> which yeah. is pretty bad. They always bogged down. Like I made sure because I was just ambitious, you know, first years of teaching or whatever, that we got through like up through the present day-ish, the present era, you know, like, oh, we're in the war on terror, like, you know, in my world history class. Yeah, yeah. But I probably brushed over too many things, too. So it's not like it was perfect. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a lot to cover, especially the idea of world history. Like, that's a shit ton. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And it suffers from all sorts of (laughs) all sorts of problems of focus. And who are you not talking about? Yeah, Yeah, nothing happened at some point during like Asia. Like, (laughs) don't worry about it. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. back to the Soviet war in Afghanistan, the Soviet Afghan war. In the Soviet Union, it was frequently just called the Afghan War for, you know, for them, kind of like the United States calls it the Vietnam War. This is a nine-year war. They don't quite get to the, you know, anniversary mark, I suppose. And it's between the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, backed up by the Soviet Union, versus various rebel groups that were backed by other outside countries. Oh, okay. This made it sound like it was like Afghanistan versus the Soviet Union. Well, it's some people in Afghanistan versus the Soviet Union, but there is also <laughs> okay. the Afghan government that was like on the side of the Soviet Union. Interesting. Tell me more. All right. So the backstory in brief is Afghanistan has, because of its strategic importance, it's like kind of in the center, in the, in the kind of crossroads of Asia. There's like land routes going through it got a ton of resources. It's been the center of a lot of conflict for centuries. Back in the day when it was Great Britain versus the uh, versus the Empire of Russia, this was called the Great Game, sickly enough. Oh my God, that's pretty unhinged. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Britain was basically doing imperialism. They were paranoid about anything that Russia did in regards to Central Asia because they had like India. So they're like, oh, they're going to come for it. So they had like three different Anglo-Afghan wars about this. Anytime they were like concerned, like, oh, what if this new ruler like is trying to be friendly with Russia or whatever. Um, but eventually Afghanistan gained its independence in 1919. Uh, and they get they're, they're, they have a monarchy with kind of a, a pseudo three branch government. But really, it's just kind of an autocracy, you know. Uh, and at that point, they started getting help from the Soviet Union, 1919, right there around in terms of, well, they're still like Soviet Russia at the time, but you know, they're on their way. They kind of get some help with modernization in terms of improving education and their infrastructure, but it's still very basic and very, and like, not like, uh, they're trying to do it, but it's, it doesn't have the outreach. It's like in the town still, but it's not really out there. 
in those early days, you have this very autocratic monarchy. The country was still very poor because of the imperialism that was still going on. I mean, it's just because they're free, technically, they're still in this global capitalist system, you know. And domestically, they still have this parasitic ruling class, you know. They still have the king, and the king is kind of ruling through warlords, basically, local strongmen, and that's kind of how things are run. So I have a question. You said that the Soviets helped them. I mean, they weren't the Soviets yet, but you get the idea. 1919, that seems pretty early for them to be branching out into like a lot of foreign policy. I mean, I guess I just, what's the motivation there? They were trying to make friends, honestly. So it's very early on for them. Like you said, they are recognizing uh, a country that just basically threw off British imperialism, (laughs) which they very much identify with. So they're like, oh, cool. They weren't, they were, they were kind of barely giving any sort of aid in those early days, I want to say. Okay. So maybe it's more in name. Yes. More relationships and stuff. After World War II, when you have now the main imperial power is the United States and the main like rival group to that is the USSR, then you have more aid coming to them from the Soviet Union. Okay. Gotcha. So yeah, after World War II, Afghanistan was kind of like basically trying to play both sides of the United States and the Soviet Union in terms of getting aid and those guys trying to like have influence on the country. One of the important developments of this time is the 1964 Constitution, which gave Afghanistan a a more kind of traditional liberal democratic setup. They still like had um, a king but they had like an elected parliament and sort of stuff like that. Okay, so it was more of a ceremonial king. Well, the king still had a ton of power, actually, and and like oh, would not no. <laughs> sign off on certain laws. Yeah, it was um, it was not super substantial. But one kind of cool thing was that it, even though it didn't technically legalize parties because the king was still like, eh, I don't know about that. It it kind of still allowed four parties to come into existence. Like people were not allowed to say, Oh, I'm a member of this party vote for me. But like, you still kind of knew who was in what party and who to support. It's kind of like underground sort of, but there were parties at that point. And this is where you have the founding of the people's democratic party of Afghanistan. Ooh, am I going to like them? Well, they were the communists. I am going to like them. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, they have a lot of problems too, like any party, right? Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. They were, um, they were a Marxist-Leninist party. They were founded January 1st, 1965. New Year's party, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Ringing in the new year. New year, new philosophy, new party. Let's do it. Yeah. And they were founded by a guy named Nur Muhammad Taraki and Babrak Karmal, uh, both of whom we'll talk about a lot more later. But they were the founding members. This was actually at Taraki's home uh, that they founded this political party. It's a communist party. They get four of their members elected in the first parliamentary elections that year. Out of like how many? Uh, th- way more. There's way more. Okay. Than, than I was going to say not bad, but I'm like, I have no scale for this. Yeah, no, I, I want to say it's maybe a low hundred number. I'm not quite sure. I mean, it's four more communists than we have in our government. <laughs> so, <laughs> Right? Yeah. Including they got one of the first women elected to the parliament, Anahida Ratzabad. Okay, awesome. Who was, yeah, she was pretty cool. And so you might be thinking, though, okay, they're running for Congress. What's, what is the deal? What kind of communists are these? Uh, they 
were kind of a, you know, let's do both sort of situation. They wanted a wider revolution, but they were also trying to like, and it depends on who you ask, because some of them have different, they kind of had different factions too. So some of them were more about the electoralism and some of them were more about the revolution. But in general, at that time, they were kind of working together to say, hey, like, let's do whatever happens, you know? Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, And so eventually Afghanistan ended up with a really bad famine in 1972 and they still have this kind of autocratic monarchical government uh by this point the communist representation in parliament has gone down by two members because they had some infighting whoops and yeah (laughs) and so the king um muhammad zahir shah by this point since he's not really doing anything to help the famine situation, uh, they're getting food aid from places, but like the guards are just kind of holding it and selling it to the highest bidder. Oh, fuck. Okay. And like, you know, small peasant families or whatever, they're going landless now. They're selling all their land so they can like afford enough to eat. Everyone's just, you know, getting thrown out in the street. It makes them unpopular enough for there to be a coup. This is carried out in 1973 by a former prime minister named Muhammad Daoud Khan, who just so happened to be the cousin of the king. (laughs) Oh, awkward. Yeah, while the king was in Europe recovering from medical treatment, Muhammad Daoud Khan did a little coup, supported by most (laughs) of the political class, including the the Communist Party, the PDPA, uh, because they were kind of like, Daoud kind of talked left, so they were kind of like, who knows, maybe this guy, you know, maybe he'll be okay. Uh, he's better than the king. Exactly. Better than mishandling famine king guy. Like, no. <laughs> yeah. And only eight people are killed in the coup overall, because pretty much nobody was like for the king <laughs> by that point. His eight other cousins. <laughs> yeah. So um, he was out. And Daoud declared, instead of taking power as a king himself, declared a republic with himself at the helm as as like a as like a president. Okay. I mean... I would say good first step, but it doesn't super matter. Right. It especially doesn't matter because he institutes a one-party dictatorial (laughs) sort of situation. Yeah, okay. It definitely doesn't. Republic, but not actually anything. Yeah. And he just kind of starts sidelining the communists pretty much immediately, even though some of them had, you know, they had helped him take power. What the fuck? So he doesn't end up fundamentally changing the economic conditions at all. Things still suck. Uh, he alienates people who thought, you know, oh, this guy might be able to change things. Turns out not. At, by this point, you're looking at Afghanistan with 75% of the land held by 3% of the population. Holy shit. Only 12% of the land is, first of all, able to grow crops, arable. But only less than half of that is actually cultivated <gasps> because of the inefficiencies of, like, feudalism and the, and the, and the landlord class and all that. It's just, it's not done. Uh, 86% of the population is rural, 8% of it's nomadic. You have no, like, small villages that have electricity. You have no railways. It's among the world's poorest countries. It's got a 5% literacy rate. Oh, my God. An average life expectancy of 40 and an infant mortality rate of 25%. And this is in what year? 65? Uh, 73. Oh, gosh, that's worse. Okay, not great. So that's the Daoud Republic or the Republic of Afghanistan. Republic for me is in air quotes. <laughs> it should be, yeah. Uh, and so the communists by this point are still in opposition to the government now because they've been shut out. And they start kind of gaining popularity 
as a potential, you know, hey, these guys might change things. Now, this is actually kind of limited, and the communists don't really realize that. They are way out ahead of what the people want, and we'll see what they kind of do in the future with, like, anti-religious, feminist, progressive policies. But that is, like, way further than what especially people in the countryside are looking for. But they do enjoy some of their support, broad popular support, because they're talking economics and saying, like, let's do these things, you know, let's change. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if you're coming out of a famine and like mismanagement of land, like just talk to those points. Right. Yeah. So they end up with really significant support in the cities and like generally pretty good support in the countryside at the time. And by this point, you actually start to see a factional split within the party. Oh, no, not one of those. Yeah, so it's a split within the party. It's still not like they're breaking away, but they have factions now, okay? So the two factions are the Kalks is one, the K-H-A-L-Q. Oh, I didn't see that Q coming. Okay. (laughs) And this translates roughly to the masses or the people. And this is the more radical sort of faction. They preferred like a mass class struggle to overthrow the Republic and have a big revolution. Sounds great. Right. Yeah. They were kind of like Marxist-Leninist, vanguard party, lead a proletarian revolution, establish a worker state. Uh, They also tended to be more like the lower class support and predominantly of the Pashtun ethnicity, uh, which is uh, for listeners who are unaware or just anyone who's unaware. And me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The Pashtun is not necessarily the numerically majority. There's not actually, I don't think there's a majority in Afghanistan of one particular ethnic group. Uh, They may be the largest, but they are definitely the most predominant in terms of... um, especially at that time, the political class. Uh, the other group, so that was the Kalks, kind of the more revolutionary, more radical, more lower class, that sort of thing. The other group is the Parchams. Uh, the Parcham, that translates to the banner or the flag. Ooh, okay. And these guys, and I encourage you to look these uh, icons up for these guys. They're pretty cool. And also the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, look them up too. I will do this. Because they have some fire logos, I think. The party, for one, has super a super cool one. Let me see. Oh, is that like wheat with like a, yes. a gear around it? Uh-huh. That's pretty sweet. That's good design. And then the caulks and the parcham, I think, both have some strengths. Oh, that's pretty good. More wheat. We love wheat around here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Christmas wreath, but made up of wheat. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. <laughs> More wheat on the other too but this one's like fancier it's got like an engraving look we got a book we got like a a what appears to be a window with like stairs going up it yeah i believe it's supposed to be a pulpit oh okay gotcha gotcha uh but the the parchams were more reformist they were more gradual about their approach to socialism basically they said afghanistan wasn't industrialized enough for proletarian revolution right away So you needed to kind of, you know, reform your way in that direction. Uh, Their supporters tended to be more urban, more middle, upper class, that sort of thing. Yeah, that was going to be my question going into this is is that, you know, you gave me those stats earlier and I was like, wow, I don't know how you would even distribute the resources. You don't have the resources. Yeah, that's one of the things that the Parcham were kind of saying is uh, we've got to build a base first, you know? Yeah. While the Kalk would kind of counter and say, yeah, we need to build that base first, but the Soviet Union showed us how to do that, and that's create a worker state and build from there. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good point, too, because if they are at this point already receiving some aid from the Soviets, like, you know, they'll get more if you go full communist. Right. Yeah. And so that was there. And both of, I do want to say, though, both of these factions, the PDPA overall, was pro-Soviet. They Neither one of them was saying, nah, fuck the Soviet Union. You know, we're not, we're not going to do, like, <laughs> both of them were, realized that that was going to be their closest ally. Damn, I would be, like, torn on which one to join. Uh, yeah, I think I would, yeah, I mean, they both have good points, I think. I'd probably go with the Calks, but they both seem cool. Well, we'll we'll just see what they do. It's Uh-oh. it's interesting. So. Okay, that's my prediction. Is my my initial vote goes to the cock. So we'll see if someone can sway me. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll see where you're swayed. <laughs> so they have these factions, but thanks to some diplomacy by the Soviet Union, they end up reconciled and stay united enough to carry out a coup against Daoud. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. So they didn't break up. They just they went to therapy. I went to therapy. How does what Cox said make you feel, Parcha? <laughs> this is a safe space. Yeah. Well, okay. The reason that they end up doing a coup against Daoud is because he turns on the party. Initially, he had just shut them out, but he really turns on them in April 1978. He might have assassinated one of their leaders. Whoa. Okay. That's quite a turn. Like, it's really unclear. Mir Akbar Khyber gets killed. And it's just so shady circumstances. Initially, the PDPA says the government was responsible, but then like different factions say, oh, no, it was this faction that killed him. No, it was that faction that killed him. So like unclear. It's very confusing. Yeah. But the predominant story at the time was that this was Daoud and he's coming for us next. And he does end up arresting a bunch of the other leaders of the PDPA. So they say, well, they actually kind of already had a plan. If this guy ever does this sort of shit, we're going to do a coup. <laughs> and so they launch their coup, which is called the SAR Revolution, or which is which translates to the April Revolution. I just got a spoiler on Anahita Ratibazad. Ratibazad? Mm-hmm. Because um, I went to her Wikipedia page to look at her. She's rocking a great 70s beehive. Yes. <laughs> it says she was deputy head of state. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Spoilies. Yeah. <laughs> So they do the SAR revolution, the April revolution, kind of as a survival tactic, you know, as like, oh shit, we're about to get wiped out. Let's go. And on April 27th, 1978, they launch the coup. They are successful because they have some high up military guys who were party members. Oh, didn't see that coming. Which is interesting. Yeah. For the modern left, we don't really have a lot of pull in. (laughs) The armed forces, um, our own revolutionary dreams might not go so well. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. So they, they mobilize, they take over. It takes a day. Um, I only have one source on like how many people died. It's kind of questionable. So it's, they claim like as many as 2000. Uh, I know that there were some battles, but it seems like it was kind of small scale, but they take over in like a day. So, you know, I don't think overall it would have been terribly, terribly bloody, but possibly as many as 2,000 people. But that's the SAR revolution. And the PDPA, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, take power. All right, what do they do with this power? Do they start out radical and then like get less radical? Because that's what happens a lot. <laughs> that's my guess. Uh, yeah, broadly speaking, yeah, that's what okay. happens. Oh, I've seen it too many times. Well, I think they have... Their situation kind of makes sense why they did what they did, but we'll talk about it. So 
the PDPA, first of all, they free their imprisoned party members, right? That's a good first step. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And they divide up the top posts between the Kalk and the Parcham supporters. The Kalk were still in the majority, though, and the top two guys were both Kalkists. But in general, like, the Parchamites also had positions in the government. Like you mentioned, Anahita Radipsad ends up with a government post. Okay, which one is she? What what part is she from? Um, She was in the Parcham. Okay. So they take power, and the top two guys are the founder of one of the founders of the party, Nur Muhammad Taraki. Yeah, I remember that name. He's the main guy, Taraki, just chairman of the Revolutionary Council, and a guy named Hafizullah Amin. Uh, he was the second in command, basically. All right, those guys are both in the Kalk faction. And like you said, they're going to start, rea- they're gonna start uh, real radical. <laughs> and their agenda, I mean, because, okay, they've got to, they have a mandate from, wh- you know, from where they're coming from. Their job is to rapidly improve the lives of the people of Afghanistan, given this dire situation. Yeah, they got a lot of work to do. What do they do? All right, so they start with the economy and with healthcare and education and with women. They just do like a whole bunch of stuff. Okay, great. Okay? Uh, so we'll just t- cover this topically and then talk about what happens after that. In the economy, they start nationalizing industry. They end up building 100 new factories within five years. Uh, they abolish peasants' debts to landlords in part of um, their land reform decree, decree number six, uh, which limits, uh, which put limits on landowning per family, confiscated anything above those limits without compensation, and redistributed some 665,000 hectares of land. That's pretty great. Yeah, according to the government, you know, according to them, I suppose, they claimed that only 4% of the population was negatively affected. So, like, we took from very few people and gave to a ton of people. Yeah, because, I mean, you're saying how much the land was owned by such a small percentage. Like, Mm -hmm. that's just math, y'all. So, that was part of it. The land reform, they also introduced price caps for, like, key foods. Uh, you know, especially given those famines that they had just experienced and everything like this was important to keep people fed. They introduced a, wi- a minimum wage, a progressive income tax, uh, and they also took steps to try to stop uh, the production of poppy opium, which at the time was producing like 70 percent of the world's supply. Holy cow. And, you know, again, you're in famine times, maybe focus on food. Yeah, yeah. So those were some of the economic measures that they took. In the fields of healthcare and education, they increased the number of doctors available for people by 50%, and they started a literacy campaign. This was actually led by the Democratic Organization of Afghan Women, which was founded by Anahita Ratibzad. Ooh, I love her. And uh, this literacy campaign, they built 600 new schools across the country. They introduced compulsory schooling for girls, even in rural areas which pissed a lot of people off. That one provoked a huge backlash. They said our children are going to be raised morally in these co-educational schools, learning with boys like they do in the godless cities. And this was, I don't want to tar the country and say this was everyone because it was not, but this was in, you know, specifically very traditionalist strongholds that were saying that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a radical change just throughout their lifestyles like that's that's a lot it's a lot of change 
Mm-hmm. To, to get kind of more to that point, they, the government also really pursued a feminist agenda in those opening days as well. Decree number seven was a decree on marriage. Uh, it outlawed forced marriage. Uh, it outlawed the bride p- price payments, um, which were these huge payments like of like two thing? to five years income kind of dowry thing. Yeah. It also established a minimum marriage age, um, which I suppose was an improvement from what they had before. But the minimum marriage age was 16 for girls and 18 for boys. So, I, you know, I imagine Oof, it was okay. worse before that or was didn't exist. Yeah, before I bet. That. So that was an improvement. Uh, they pushed laws for equal rights for women, including maternity leave. Uh, they established uh, women's cooperatives, like cooperative workplaces, uh, where women could actually like have control over their over their workplace, democratic control in there, like you know a Soviet style thing. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, especially in like a very patriarchal society where like your income can be controlled by your husband. Yes, for sure. And um, also during this time, they were you know, promoting women's education so much that half of university students at the time were women. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm all about this Anahita lady. She sounds great. Yeah, no, she's cool. Uh, they also introduced a cool new flag, not as substantial of a change, but I thought it was neat. All right, let me see. I mean, if you're talking radical and then not so radical later, like that one's pretty radical. That's good. Classic. Yeah. Love it. But okay, so they quickly meet with some problems with their agenda. Namely, uh, that people uh, resisted it. There was popular resistance, especially in that traditionalist countryside we were talking about. Uh, That is where the old rigid patriarchy is the strongest. So that's where the resistance mostly comes from. People are like, what the fuck? This is not (laughs) what we were about. Because they were, you know, really just seeing anything they could see in, in... the communist party not really paying attention to the fact that oh they're like they're communists you know <laughs> they believe in in actually doing good communist shit not in just kind of like little things they wanted to do all of it and the, the people did not know realize it i guess yeah yeah uh there was also a lack of implementation in a lot of the countryside because of those uh patriarchal forces um, because the government's control was mostly confined to the cities. Mm, okay, yeah. So they weren't even seeing the benefits necessarily. Right. And this isn't a new thing to the communists. Oh, you know, they were so bad at government or whatever. Uh, central <laughs> governments in Afghanistan had always ruled indirectly through local strongmen. So the laws were really only enforced as much as those strongmen were willing to. So when they get the orders, oh, hey, you know, start sending your girls to school. They're just like, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like it would have been better if they could have had some some strongholds in the countryside who are on their side that could like kind of see that along in the process. Yeah. If they were, you know, as the Maoists would say, you know, more in the masses, mm-hmm, right? Even mm-hmm. in the countryside. So, yeah, that's what they started doing in those opening days. But also immediately, immediately upon seizing power the pdpa starts to those internal fractures that were only barely held together because they were about to be annihilated Uh oh started to open up again caulk versus parcham no 
Yeah, uh, they they still had mutual distrust. Uh, the Kalk leadership suspected the Parcham of conspiring against them. Uh, they started appointing Parcham leaders to like be ambassadors to just kick, you know, to say, oh, yeah, go deal with like this country. Please go away. <laughs> <laughs> OK, yeah. Karmal, for example, becomes ambassador to Czechoslovakia. So they're just like, okay. see you later, dude. Seems you know? like a really important post. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it was one of the Eastern Bloc countries. But yeah, they're really mainly just just saying goodbye. <laughs> yeah, a very polite exile. Now, the distrust is not completely unwarranted, which is why I said, you know, it's kind of hard to pick a favorite all the time because the Parchamites apparently did plan a coup in September 1978. Oh, that's awkward. Uh, but then someone like spilled the beans. Someone <laughs> told like one of the Soviets or something. And, and then they were like, holy shit, you know, and they, they told someone in the government and then the Kalks started doing a purge and they were recalling a bunch of the Parchamite ambassadors and most of them ended up not returning. They were like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> going to stay here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They just resigned instead of, um, and kind of self-imposed exile instead of come back to whatever might face them because a lot of them are being jailed and a lot of them even were being executed. Oh man, that's what happens when you find a group chat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm not sure on the numbers on the executions. They varied wildly and I don't know for sure if they were just talking about like the political executions or executions of rebels, but they end up with, I think thousands executed, uh, which is a lot. The estimates go up to 27,000 any, I think any number, even lower than the low bound of 11,000, even lower than That's half as much, is still a lot. So, uh, yeah, purges. Yeah, not great. For their part, the Soviets were trying to get the Kalk to stop, um, to stop this. They were like, hey, come on, work with the Parchamites, who by this point they kind of preferred already. They were like, they know more what's up about doing things gradually. They kind of suspected that Afghanistan wasn't really ready to do socialism as fast as they were trying to. And so they were telling him, like, hey, you know, stop with the purges. Come on, work with these guys. And Taraki, who's in charge, allegedly replied to them, Lenin taught us to be merciless toward the enemies of the revolution, and millions of people had Oof. to be eliminated in order to secure the victory of the October Revolution. <laughs> A ghost of Lenny. Which, to be fair, Lenin would have said, okay, yeah, I said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was me. <laughs> I, I meant that. Uh <laughs> <laughs> but I think he meant it more for like the ruling class, right? Not not so much like I don't know. Th these guys seem like they could have worked through it. I think so. I think they could have. Also, I think it's weird that that Russia was like, I don't know if you're far enough because I know I said that too. But I wonder because I mean they weren't very far. Like they were in fucking like peasant serfdoms, you know. Like whenever they popped off, I, I wonder how much of that is like internalized like racism, you know. It could be they. Uh, one thing that the that the Soviet Union was doing at the time was looking at this from a material standpoint. Mm -hmm. They really did not have a very good understanding of the culture of Afghanistan much at all, which will definitely show when they do their own when they do the intervention later. Uh, so they're looking at it from a material standpoint and saying, "Yeah, you guys do not have a developed enough industrial base to go radical with it." Now, should they just do like? I mean, I think that their position most clearly would have been take power like you did, 
you know, start a worker state like you're doing, but don't get too far out ahead. Like, yeah, like that stay in tune with the people message. Right. Like focus on the industrial part and then gradually change the culture part. Because I mean, you know, even with within the Soviet Union, they did do their initial like, oh, fuck the church. But then like sometimes they would be like, oh, <laughs> I don't know. Never mind. People kind of like it sometimes, you know. And and with feminism, they would say, oh, let's do feminism. And then they'd be like, oh, I don't know. Let's do a little more patriarchy because, you know, people like Stalin or whatever were saying our people aren't ready for this. Which it sucks when you're the oppressed group. And it just sucks in general. I mean, it just, <laughs> it's bad. Yeah, yeah, it super sucks. Just like, oh, you got to wait in line for rights. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the struggle, I suppose. Meanwhile, they had popular resistance to the reforms, like we said, begins kind of almost immediately in the countryside led by those reactionary patriarchal forces, the landlords, the local strongmen. You also have local religious leaders called mullahs. By spring of 1979, most of the provinces saw some form of violent rebellion. Oh, no. And there were even mutinies of different army units against the government. They also had desertions on the rise, too. Everything was looking like it was a mess. But the government was trying to do good things. So, like, why? You know, why were they rebelling against them? For one, a lot of them, like we said, conservative, if not reactionary. So they did not like what was happening. They were the old ruling class, and this was overthrowing what they had done. Uh, Many of them were just very, very traditionalist in terms of religion. And they accuse the new government of being atheistic. I've heard that there is like an interpretation to Islam that can be socialist. I wonder if they would have had better luck like rolling some of that out. Oh, yeah. And they will later try that. Oh, okay. that was not what they lead with out of the gate. <laughs> they were just like, fuck this. Uh, yeah. And some of them, it, it varies to degree. You know, some of them were more anti-religious than others. But it's not what they were trying to do initially. And I've heard that same thing, too, that. There, there, I mean, there's Islamic socialism. That's a thing. So those those two can be well tied together. That is not what they were trying to do initially. Yeah. Okay. So they, you know, faced kind of understandable criticism from people who were like, uh, "This is <laughs> this is not Islamic enough for me." Hindsight, am I right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there were also nationalists who disliked the party's close links with the Soviet Union. They saw them as kind of, you know, subservient and wanting to turn Afghanistan overall into a Soviet puppet. But I mean, you could make the same argument for like an imperialist kind of system of like, hey, please grow opium for us. Fuck you guys. Yep. Like they were definitely in that relationship with it sounds like with Britain, right? Yep. Yep. They had been and they, you know, still were in terms of the global market, you know, and they end up in that situation, too. Once the Soviets are gone, they end up at the mercy of the world market again. Ugh, yeah. Uh, there were also a couple of Maoist rebel groups. Ooh, interesting. What were they doing? You had the Afghanistan Liberation Organization and the Liberation Organization of the People of Afghanistan. Uh, both of these groups taking part in the uprising and later on in the Soviet-Afghan war. Uh, but they were... Uh, fighting, you know, they were also fighting against this government, seeing it as as not like a people's government, as their typical kind of criticisms of the Soviet Union, especially on the other side of the Sino-Soviet split. I will say they got a good flag. (laughs) 
It's all about the logos. It's pretty sweet. It's kind of hard to read, but it's cool. So all of the rebel groups besides the Maoist one, all these groups were called the, uh, an umbrella term called the Mujahideen. Okay, so the term kind of refers to people fighting for Islam. Hmm, okay. That's an unfortunate dichotomy. Yeah, and, you know, it eventually just means these rebel groups, but that's that's kind of the term they use for them. Yeah, that's not great. And it is important to note uh, that these guys, while they begin as this domestic force of resistance against the government, they end up receiving tons of foreign assistance throughout the conflict. Like, we'll talk about just how much these guys are bankrolled by all these different countries. Yeah, that makes sense. But they, you know, they do start out, you know, it's not to say that this was entirely fabricated because this is based on popular resistance, yes. But even from the opening months of 1979, they are already getting training in guerrilla warfare from neighboring Pakistan. Fuck, okay. So that's the situation they're facing. And the PDPA repeatedly asks the Soviet Union for military aid, specifically troops, to help them fight against this rebellion. Okay, how does that go? Well, the Soviets keep telling him no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so not well. Yeah, they're like, this is a bad idea. Our enemies and your enemies will really eat this up. They're, they're going to, you know, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, let's get them. You know, maybe just like tone it down a bit with all the reforms. Get people back on your side. Convince them like you're not, the, you know, the, the terrible, uh, horrible people that they say you are and, and just do kind of some good for them and mm-hmm. clean things up. And maybe, you know, maybe things will turn around. Yeah, I mean, hire out a bunch of Islamic socialists to go spread that word. Yeah, or something like that, right? But eventually, the Soviets do kind of agree to do more for them. It's a very gradual process. But at first, they start out selling some helicopters and deploying some military advisors. In the spring of 1979, they end up sending, as things kind of escalate, they start sending uh, a tank detachment to guard some government buildings in Kabul. Uh, In July, they end up sending an airborne battalion disguised as technical specialists to be bodyguards for Taraki, the main guy. But the Afghan government keeps, you know, the situation does not get any better. And so they keep wanting more. They keep, you know, their requests just keep increasing. Like, we would like a regiment. We would like, you know, a battalion (laughs) of people. Um, And the Soviets are just like, what the fuck? No, we're not going to send you the army. We're not doing it. (laughs) Okay. And that's kind of the situation that they find themselves in when, and all throughout this, throughout 1979, relations between the number one man, Taraki, and the number two man, Amin, they start deteriorating. Uh Uh-oh, another breakup. Yeah, and it's complicated in terms of exactly why. They do have some personal disagreements, and each is sort of kind of a rival for power within the party. Overall, it looks like Amin... Amin's the number two guy. He sees Taraki as old, as weak, and as a drunk. And he's kind of resentful because he's always been Taraki's enforcer. He's the number two guy, you know, and he's always the one behind him. He had to put together these mass propaganda campaigns to try to increase his popularity. So he's thinking, you know, I'm the guy that made Taraki what he is, you know, and he's over here falling apart. You know what? He's too old to do this now. It shouldn't be him. If he's the guy who did a lot of propaganda, I mean, sounds like he's dropping the ball here. Because he's not popular, you mean? Yeah. Mm, True. But I guess propaganda also can't 
change everything necessarily. No, it can't. can't. But it also depends on the the reach of that, how much of that propaganda was actually getting out to the countryside where they were facing all these problems. Taraki, for his part, thought that Amin was trying to undermine him, to undermine the revolution. And he was also being convinced by the Soviets, by the, Uh by whenever he, whenever he would meet with them, he was being convinced by them that Amin was dangerous. Ooh, okay. Therapist turned on him. (laughs) (laughs) Not a good therapist. Gotta be neutral. (laughs) Right? So it's September 9th, 1979 that he ends up, Taraki ends up talking with some Soviet delegates at the non-aligned movement conference in Havana in Cuba. And on the way back, he ends up stopping in Moscow where the KGB have a meeting with him and they tell him, Hey, Amin, he should be removed from power. (gasps) A few days later, Taraki, he's, you know, got his nerves together, invites Amin to lunch with him in the presidential palace Uh and tries to have his bodyguards kill Amin. Okay. Did we need to kill him? (laughs) That, that was not, spe- it wasn't specified kill. They didn't him. say just, kill him. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So in between there, they did have this like. Uh, did they wink? They did. Well, they did have this little. No, no, no. Not the Sophie. I mean, Amin and Taraki had a, they had a total slap fight in the, uh, in the cabinet meeting. Not literally. I mean, but they just yelled at each other, you know, like, <laughs> you suck, you, you know, whatever. Mm, uh, yeah, yeah, real yeah. drama. And that was where Taraki initially tried to fire him, but Amin was just like, fuck you, I'm not quitting. <laughs> you, you can't do that to me. <laughs> oh, okay. And so... Okay, so it escalated. Yeah, and Taraki was like, fine, I'll just kill you at lunch. <laughs> Meet me for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Amin escaped uh, and went and got some army troops and comes back and arrests Taraki. Uh-oh. And apparently here the Soviets either, it's unclear if they thought about rescuing Taraki or kidnapping Amin. There's like different sources on that. But either way, they couldn't actually pull it off because there were too many like army troops there to, to try this without provoking a conflict. So instead, they just told Amin, hey, like fire, you know, fire Taraki, like get, get him out of the party, exile him. Wink. But don't like, don't kill him. Oh, okay. So they actually specified that time. <laughs> well, yeah, the, his Soviet contacts, because what he does is he gets on the phone with the leader of the Soviet Union, Leonid Brezhnev, and says, hey, and, you know, these guys told me not to kill him, but like... Please. What do you, I want to kill him. What do you think? <laughs> Can I? And Brezhnev tells him, hey, man, that's up to you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Wow. And so, I mean, smothers his comrade. <gasps> he, has, he, has his, he has him smothered. He doesn't do it himself. <laughs> for dramatic effect yeah it's october 8th 1979 kills him damn oh that's rough so some betrayal amin took power and he tries actually to moderate the government's course specifically about religion that was his big kind of push he was facing a lot of resistance for that so he goes out there to try to persuade everyone hey i don't hate religion you know <laughs> and so he puts government money towards rebuilding mosques starts talking about Allah in his speeches and even puts out an official biography of him with him dressed in traditional Pashtun clothes instead of like a Western suit, which is what he normally wore. It's not a bad idea. I don't think you need to smother your pal for it, but it's not a bad idea. (laughs) Usually you don't. Usually don't need to do that. Uh, (laughs) But that's what he did. So it turns out to be kind of like not convincing. People are like, dude, you were the number two guy under Taraki when y'all were like executing every 10th person. You know, like you guys have been persecuting us all <laughs> over the place. Anybody who stands up is getting thrown in jail. So like, mm. 
And plus, you're still totally working for the Soviets, which a lot of these guys did not like. You know, they didn't like a foreign country intervening. So let me ask, were they putting straight up anti-religious policies or was it just more of there were some like progressive stuff that like traditional patriarchy was not down with? Like they weren't persecuting Islam, were they? No, I did not. You know, and um, I would welcome correction on this because I just did not see any in my research that was saying like, oh, they were banning or, oh, they were shutting down churches or anything like that. I don't think it was happening because I didn't read it in, you know, a, a litany of stuff that they were doing that was bad. Not saying it for certain didn't happen because I don't actually know. It didn't it come up. Yeah. it, it did. So uh, what I'm saying is it didn't come up in a list of complaints. <laughs> yeah. They definitely would have added it if it was there. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. From negative views, they've been like, oh, yeah, they were assholes. Right. Uh, okay. It was just that people were suspicious about those, like you said, the progressive reforms that mm -hmm. they were saying that this is violating our traditional religious way of life. Religious, I guess, from their, obviously, from their interpretation of something that does not have to be interpreted that way. Yeah, I mean, because we've talked about it before, like, I mean, Christianity can be interpreted as socialist, too. Like, mm -hmm. it just depends who's reading it. Yeah, yeah. So the Mujahideen continued to rebel against the government. And Amin, at this point, is pretty desperate. You know, he's been trying to kind of stabilize things, and it's not working. Uh, so he starts trying to improve his relations with other countries, besides just the Soviet Union. He manages to kind of get a meeting with the Pakistani foreign minister, uh, even though their intelligence service was still training the Mujahideen against him. Oh, oh, no. He also tried to befriend the Americans. How did that go? Well, uh, the Americans just told him, like, nah, we don't. <laughs> We're no good. No thanks. Because, uh, I mean, at this point, they are also secretly hating the Mujahideen. <laughs> oh, no. The Soviets oh. start to get increasingly worried about this. Not that he's, you know, he is just being a bad leader and not really putting things together. He's been kind of very repressive toward people. Uh, but they're also getting worried that he's getting more American friendly. He And some of them even claimed or suspected that he was like working with the CIA. Oh, okay. Was he? This last bit definitely does not seem true to me. There are conflicting sources. I guess I don't know for sure, but it just seems like he, I would bet a lot that he was not a CIA asset, but he was in a bad place regardless. I mean, no friends on either side. <laughs> he was fucking up. And things would only get worse. Also, it's, it's pretty bad because by this time, this is late fall 1979, the Soviets were pretty worried, worried enough to kind of reconsider that whole military intervention thing. Brezhnev was hearing it from three guys in particular that Amin had to go and that the USSR had to prop up the uh, PDPA project in Afghanistan against the Mujahideen, prop up that government to protect against the spread of radical Islam. Okay, that sucks. Yeah, so this was the, the three guys in question, uh, the KGB chief, Yuri Andropov, who would later on become the leader of the Soviet Union. Scheming. <laughs> <laughs> you also had Foreign Minister Andrei Gromykyo and Defense Minister Marshal Dmitry Ustinov. These three, guy, three guys were like, this is messed up. I mean, he sucks. We got to go in there and do some intervention. But this is a big change from what they had just been saying, which is definitely let's not do intervention. Yeah. What happened? Is it just because this guy fucked up so bad? That's part of it. Part of it is Amin was not a great option. He was not doing a good job, even though he really, really loved the Soviet Union. And that's why I th he think he really wasn't with the CIA. He just wasn't good at it. Another one was that just that year, the Iranian revolution happened. 
Ooh, okay. How did that shake things up? And this puts an Islamic theocracy right beside mm. uh, the Soviet Union, an anti-Soviet, you know, very traditionalist government right there. They're worried about having another, you know, conservative Islamic theocracy right next door. They also have um, these Central Asian Soviet Socialist Republics, SSRs, like in right, you know, right near Afghanistan and everything. They're worried that they're basically just going to start exporting anti-Soviet, you know, Mujahideen fighters. Okay, what areas were that? At the time, you would have had the... Oh, like Kazakhstan? So you have the Kazakh SSR, the Uzbek SSR, the Tajik SSR, and, and the Turkmen SSR. So these are uh, Soviet Socialist Republic's constituencies of the USSR. So they're like in the Soviet Union, but like the Russia, you know, Russia had the Russian SSR, you know, they had their own SSR thing. So it's like states, I guess, in the... <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're definitely related. Got it. Right, yeah. And so they're worried, you know, these guys are going to mess stuff up and it caused separatist movements and these sorts of things. So the Soviets decide that they are going to oust Amin and they're going to replace him with a name we've mentioned before, the exiled Babrak Karmal. Oh, who was that guy again? I forgot. So he was one of the Parchemites. Um, he oh. was the other founder along with Taraki, the founder of the party. Of the original party. Okay. Okay. This guy made a comeback. He, yeah, he was the one, he got exiled in the purges, got ex, you know, ended up in Czechoslovakia for a little while, uh, but then ends up going back to Moscow and, and kind of talking to them and everything. And they like him. They say, okay, he'll, he'll fix things. He's moderate enough. He can deal with the tense situation, convince them that things are good. It'll, it'll, you know, it'll work. We'll send in some troops to kind of stabilize things for him, get him on his feet. We'll be home in six months. Something tells me they're not going to be home in six months. No, try nine years. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I forgot. That was, you already told me this spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they decide Amin has got to go. So, at first, they try assassinating him. All right. What do they do this time? Uh, instead of meeting for lunch, does he, does he meet for brunch or for dinner? There are a couple of poisoning attempts. <laughs> At lunch, at like, you know, at dinners that fail one time, they poison him, but he, you know, he gets super ill and everything. And the people he's with take him to the, a doctor at the Soviet embassy that did not know about the plot and just like takes care of him <laughs> oh, and cures no. him. They're oh, like, that's awkward. Dumbass. We were trying to kill this guy. <laughs> um, they oh. at some point try to poison him, but like he's drinking Coca-Cola and it like, dilutes the poison or something yeah i don't know what sort of poison (laughs) only drinking coca-cola now (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's funny they should use that in an ad yeah don't worry about the kgb (laughs) yeah and at some point they're gonna snipe him but like i think the security they had beefed up security in kabul enough to where like they couldn't pull it off but anyway they decide this isn't fucking working so we're just gonna do a coup and kill him in the coup classic yeah, so they set up a, an operation called Operation Storm 333. Ominous name. It is, yeah. And they do this. It's December 27th, 1979. Uh, the Soviet Special Forces Spetsnaz, they storm the palace, and uh, they end up taking out Amin. 
Now, here's a really sad thing about this to me. Amin never saw the coup part coming. Oh, even with like, I got a tummy ache and my Coke tastes funny. He never knew (laughs) and never suspected that the Soviet Union was trying to kill him. He was steadfastly loyal to these guys. He was a Stalin fanboy, had a portrait of him on his desk even. Oh, wow. Okay. I wouldn't go that far, but sure. And he knew, he just knew that the Soviets were going to come help him. Even as the attack unfolded and was, it was raining down on him, he, you know, people are telling him about what's happening. And he's like, hey, don't worry, man. The Soviets are going to come help us from this. <gasps> oh, okay. Betrayal. And they had to tell him, like, no, dude, these are the Soviets coming to get you. <laughs> That's he's like, really awkward. Oh, shit. You know, he just didn't realize it. Wow. So maybe this guy was just a dummy. I mean, like, seems pretty incompetent and does not pick up on cues. <laughs> maybe so. It, it did make me feel kind of sorry for the guy. I mean, the guy did do some bad things. I don't want to paper over that. But I don't, I definitely don't think he was a CIA asset just because of that. And yeah, it's, you know, you're just like, oh, man. <laughs> too loyal Uh, yeah okay (laughs) so he gets killed and the soviets install babrak karmal as head of the government announcing over the state radio that amin had been executed by revolutionary tribunal and that that revolutionary government had elected karmal to be in charge really they had just kind of put him in you know yeah elected is that should be in (laughs) quotation marks too (laughs) yeah (laughs) he was elected in moscow he was selected Um, we just forgot a letter (laughs) Uh, that same day, Soviet troops dressed in Afghan uniforms occupied major government buildings in Kabul, and they also sent in ground forces from the north, uh, a big, huge ground, uh, you could call it invasion. All in all, totaling around 80,000 soldiers kicking off the main, the war phase of the Soviet-Afghan war. How does this go down? What happens? One thing, I just kind of mentioned the term, and I do want to Uh, briefly discuss it. People like to get nitpicky about invasion versus intervention, especially if you go into communist spaces, they'll say, well, the Soviet Union never invaded because they were invited 11 times by the Afghan government. (laughs) Okay. You know, which is true. But one of the guys doing the inviting was Amin, who gets his head blown (laughs) off when the invasion happens. I think the nuance distinction isn't super important from the point of view of the Afghan people. They end up seeing, you know, foreign troops come in to quell a popular rebellion, regardless of what you call it. So I like to just call it intervention because it is a little more accurate. Yeah, yeah. To me, it's it still feels pretty invady. Yeah, it, I guess the difference is, though, like we opened with, they're not there to take down the government. They're there to support it. But mm. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, we've done that, too. <laughs> True. Yeah. So this ends up, uh, this is just not a good situation. All along, one of the big criticisms of the party you know, of the communist government here is that it had really, it was just a stooge for Moscow. And this is going to make it look like, yeah, they defo are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you hired them to come in here. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, they can rationalize it, right? They could say this is temporary. It's an emergency measure. It's for the people's good. It's for the good of the revolution. Sure. Okay. But in practice, it does end up just pissing off that resistance that was calling you a puppet in the first place. Yeah, that's really not a good look. I don't know. It's hard to say because, you know, maybe it was necessary. Maybe they would just have been wiped out had they not done it. I don't know. But it certainly uh, made things hard, too, in its own way. (laughs) Yeah. Plus, by this point, the Mujahideen, their resistance increasing because of the, you know, being incensed about the intervention. Uh, We're getting a lot of encouragement from 
a wide array of imperialist countries. Mm, what do the United States do? Yeah, there you go. The United States. Let's hear about them. <laughs> Even before the Soviets, on March 30th, 1979, in a Defense Department meeting, they had already brought up the idea. It was a guy named Walter Slocum who said, you know, hey, what if we, like, get the Soviets bogged down in their own kind of Vietnamish situation? Wow. Okay, great. You know, what if we can provoke them to intervene here and then make them bleed as much as possible, that might be good. <laughs> Gosh. Just this guy, again, That going back to that first label of the game, like, this guy's just like, what if we kill a bunch of people to, as a distraction? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Jesus. And this kind of idea percolates in the intelligence circles for a little bit. It's not super important. I, wanna, I don't want to be like, oh, man, if it weren't for Walter, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> because America's imperial interests would still get us to find a way to do to, you know, to attack their ideological and, and material rival, however they could, you know, regardless yeah, of sure. the life of, of the body count. They were still going to do that. Right. Yeah, that was that was on the list. <laughs> Walter, an asshole. Sure. But <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't just Walter. So that idea kind of simmers. And then July 3rd, 1979, President Jimmy Carter, well-known humanitarian and <laughs> nice great, guy. Yeah. Liberal president and all this uh, signs a directive for the CIA to send over $500,000 in secret, quote unquote, non-lethal mm. aid to the Mujahideen uh, through Pakistani contacts in the ISI, which is their like uh, intelligence service. So non-lethal. What are we talking? Cupcakes? Uh. <laughs> well, the, the, the non-lethal aid was supposed to be like supplies and stuff, you know, rations and things like that. But like it was actually they used a lot of it to facilitate third party arm sales anyways. So they just thought, oh, we didn't. So, <laughs> so they, they were giving them stuff to trade for weapons. Yeah, pretty much. They were facilitating. <laughs> that sucks. Now, July 3rd, this is six months before the Soviets intervened. So they were in before. It's not it, later on. They'll go back and say, oh, we, we didn't do this until the terrible intervention. And what they did when that happened is they acted shocked. They're like, oh, my goodness. How did the Soviet <laughs> Union do this? You know, crazy. Yeah. We weren't dreaming about them doing this, but <laughs> President Carter called for sanctions on the Soviet Union, so he called for like economically starving their people. Their people, he promised aid to Pakistan, and he also in the State of the Union that next year, you know, and that happens early in the year, so it's like a month later, issues what becomes called the Carter Doctrine. Ooh, okay, what's this? Uh, all it does is commit the U.S. to go to war for oil in the Persian Gulf. That's a bad doctrine, bro. <laughs> it was to defend the U.S. national interests. <laughs> we would use force if necessary in the Persian Gulf, which is just to say we'll go to war for oil. No, yeah, that is a direct translation. <laughs> That's insane. Okay, question. Mm-hmm. Can you maybe explain more of like Pakistan's role in this? In this, like, I don't understand quite like why they're getting help, or like why were they receiving U.S. aid? And yeah, what what are they doing? So Pakistan was uh, an American ally, for one. So they were anti-Soviet. They were strongly anti-Soviet because India, their main rival, uh, was pro-Soviet. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. So Pakistan was anti-Soviet, pro-Chinese because of the Sino-Soviet split. Wait, Pakistan was friends with China? Yes. Um, And their ruler, they had like this military dictator kind of ruler 
uh, General Mohammad Zia Ilhak. I mean, he was strongly anti-Soviet. Like we said, he was allied with the with the United States and China. Uh, so that's mainly their thing there. Damn, once again, really regretting that Sino split. It's not a good one. Not a good one. That's my time machine change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could could change a lot of things. So the United States, obviously, they're like, oh, my goodness, how could this happen? <laughs> they also call for a boycott of the next Olympics, the 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow. You know, a lot of countries join up with that boycott, and the Soviet Union later retaliates, boycotting the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. So they have, like, dueling boycotts, and they even put on their rival sort of event, the Friendship Games, which just sounded very nice. <laughs> Friendship games. That's just getting drunk and playing Mario Kart. <laughs> <laughs> I would <laughs> be great I would at that. Love that. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, that's a bummer though, because everyone missed out on their really cute mascot from the 1980s Olympics. It's got a cute little bear. Oh. He's so cute. Misha. Oh, he's so Look adorable. at Misha. <laughs> I would have gone and just been like, that's fine. I'm that's a communist, good. but also I came here for this bear. <laughs> I came here for the bear. That's so cute. <laughs> oh, what was the L.A. one? Oh, yeah. Maybe I bet it wasn't as... Ugh, terrible logo. Just stars having a spasm. Fast stars. Guys, what if the stars were fast? That looks like a government agency. It does. The official poster is even worse. I don't think they fucking had a mascot. Losers. Mascot is a cop. <laughs> Might as well be. LAPD. <laughs> Oh my god, Sam the Olympic Eagle. I want to punch this eagle in the face. Oh, that's probably cute. No, it's dorky. This is what people come to hear. This is an Uncle Sam looking motherfucker. He is, but yeah, he's... He's a little cute, but... Yeah, he's mostly dumb. If you're into that shit. All right, so that's part of it. Uh, (laughs) Misha all the way. (laughs) Team Misha. Team Misha. Hashtag Team Misha. Please tweet that at us. (laughs) Uh, Other countries chimed in too with the shock... Uh, the the British government under friend of the show, Margaret Thatcher, uh, also Ugh. condemned the Soviet Union for their horrible invasion. Um, China condemned it too, which again, to be fair, like, okay, they were invading. So like, it's not great. Um, it's not a good look for sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying I agree with it. Yeah, but these guys are, I don't know. They're just very not genuine. But I don't know. It's like, okay, but you're like already involved in this conflict. <laughs> Yeah, you're you're not here for the right reasons. <laughs> yeah. So more concretely, though, aside from Olympic posturing and stuff, uh, what did these nations do about the situation? A ton. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, and it, I mean, so think about it from their perspective. It's pretty perfect. They get to weaken their geopolitical rival militarily, economically, politically, because they're going to be bleeding them. They're going to be sapping their money. They're going to be trying to, you know, embarrass them on the world stage. Okay. Uh, They're going to be dumping excess production from their own military industrial complex. And best of all, no one's even going to get too sad about all the people who are going to get killed in the process because of racism. Oh, yeah. They don't have to spend any of their troops on it. They don't have to spend any of their troops on it. They don't have to spend much of their news hours on it because it's just, oh, more people died in Afghanistan. Wow. Yeah. Let's get to the details, though. Yeah, give me this war story. You know we're good at that. Yeah, very good. But this is the covert stuff, anyway, the, Ooh, or the, okay. the aid from the different countries. The United we're States. We're a little better at that. 
Yeah, this is the juicy <laughs> stuff, I think. The United States stepped up their covert CIA aid to the Mujahideen, which was called Operation Cyclone. God damn it, that is a good name. <laughs> Isn't it? Uh, <laughs> they amended the whole non-lethal thing right out, even though, again, they had, they had really not been doing that. Yeah, yeah. They started funneling arms to the Mujahideen through, the, through Pakistan's ISI. Carter also got Saudi Arabia to match U.S. funding for this, like a, like a deadly version of an NPR <laughs> fundraising drive. Your dollars go twice as far. <laughs> yeah. Your I weapons just, manufacturing. What? Yeah, insane. <laughs> That's insane. Uh, real dark side shit. He calls him up. He's like, I can send you a tote bag. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in 1981, you had a change in... Uh, leadership in the United States. Friend of the show, Ronald Reagan, became president. Oh, great. Uh, you can imagine he, you know, he got right out of this and said, no, we're going to do peace. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, so he escalated USA to the Mujahideen immensely. In total, when you combine that with Saudi and Chinese aid, this is like the only number I could get on it. It amounts to around $26 billion in today's dollars. Wolf. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Reagan even made this whole escalating all this into a thing. Just like Carter had his doctrine, Reagan had his doctrine. The remix. I bet <laughs> this one's worse somehow. Uh, he basically said the U.S. would aid anti-communist movements anywhere in the world. Neat. Yeah, that is worse. Okay, got it. <laughs> all right. One question you may be wondering is about a certain famous affable enough to be played by Tom Hanks, is it? Famous Texas congressman. Yes. What did this guy do? Charlie Wilson. Charlie Wilson. Yeah. So, okay. His role in this was just pouring fuel on a fire is how I like to think of it as. Because Congress is already doing this shit. They have already appropriated money and they've got the little fundraising drive to to match it. (laughs) He, however, goes to Congress to uh, keep appropriating more and more money to Operation Cycle. (gasps) Uh, even enough to start providing Stinger missiles, uh, these uh, surface-to-air missiles that you can shoulder fire. Uh, so he's, he starts getting that sent over to the Mujahideen. So, I mean, that's his role is just getting more money there. It's not really a big deal. They were already doing it. He's just kind of, like, making matters worse, I guess. Tom Hanks, what the fuck, man? You're supposed to be, like, a nice guy. Tom Hanks is very CIA, in my opinion. But <laughs> no, he is. Like, yeah, pretty much all his movies are like, look, patriotism and also anti-communism. Don't look at that part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ugh, um, yeah. So all this money that's getting funneled in from the, uh, from the telethons at Saudi Arabia and all that, <laughs> all this money is also being used to recruit and train and arm in transport around 100,000 foreign fighters to Afghanistan to join the fun. Because why not? Hot you know, damn. Get okay. in the business, including a lot of them from Saudi Arabia, including one fellow named Osama bin Laden. Oh, okay. So we paid for that guy, huh? Oh, yeah. Now, he didn't really need to be paid for. He could have bought his own passage because he was from a rich family, but... Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. They... <laughs> If you ever want to go down a 9-11 rabbit hole, look at the Bin Laden family. Uh-oh, okay. Uh, messed up. <laughs> so they're doing that. They're also doing this fun program where they put $51 million through this grant, through the um, U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, uh, which always does this kind of like 
CIA front shady stuff. Yeah, that name is very sus. Like, mm, international yeah. development. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we've read Open Veins, so we're like, development. <laughs> yeah, that's a concerning word. <laughs> um, but they give a grant to the University of Nebraska at Omaha, their center for Afghanistan studies. $51 million goes to them. And in the 80s, they used that to produce textbooks for school children that were smuggled into the country. And the Mujahideen, who, the warlords who were smuggling them into the country, demanded that they put some anti-Soviet stuff in there. And so these children's textbooks, like how to read and how to count and stuff, are filled with talk of jihad. <gasps> they feature drawings of guns, like assault rifles, bullets, soldiers, and mines. Children are taught to count with pictures of guns and knives oh and grenades God. and assault rifles. Wow, wow, wow. It's like, my uncle has a gun. He uses his gun for jihad. Like, these are passages there. Wow. That's insane. Okay, 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 back up. I'm having a brain moment. So we funded terrorism, basically. To take down the Soviets, yeah. Okay, why aren't we, like, why aren't we flipping things in the street right now? What? what? (laughs) What? Lots, Lots of people don't know it. Oh my one. God, I feel like an idiot for not knowing this. I mean, I knew they were kind of connected. Like I, I had heard like, yeah, we're the reason he's here. But like, it, it was always couched in terms of like, well, because we invaded at this time and because we, you know, we're fucking around. Mm-hmm. But this is like straight correlation, like not even correlation, this is causation. <laughs> yeah, the crazy thing, one of the crazy things I think about in this is a lot of this aid, it, most of this aid is going through Pakistan through their ISI, their intelligence service. And they were deliberately picking the groups, the specific Mujahideen factions, because the Mujahideen was not united at all. There's a bunch of different groups. And within that, there's like seven major groups. And you have some of them that are like just kind of traditionalists and some of them who are like religious fundamentalists. And the Pakistanis were picking specifically the fundamentalists to give the aid to, and specifically within that, they were picking one group from this guy that they said he didn't have as much grassroots support. The reason they picked him as the dominant guy was so that he would be more dependent upon and loyal to Pakistan. Oh my God. So like they had other options. Like one mm-hmm. of the people that were against them were like, weren't, weren't they like communists too? Yeah. You had for, yeah. for sure. So yeah, that didn't have to be this way. Oh, no. And like, and, and I'm sure it was framed in the media as like the, you know, the Soviet Union is invading this like, you know, indigenous rebellion. I don't know if indigenous is the right word, but you know what I mean? Like a grassroots rebellion. Yeah. And no, <laughs> this is an external rebellion, essentially. And I want to, yeah, I do want to emphasize it starts grassroots that is there, but it's fueled and it, you know, it, it's, it's really kept afloat by billions of dollars coming from all over the place. <sighs> yeah, I mean, what, 26 billion and then 51 billion million on these crazy textbooks. Mm-hmm. Uh 100k foreign fighters. This is insane. Guns coming from all over the place from Egypt, they upgraded their army's weapons and sold the old ones to the Mujahideen for cheap. Uh, Turkey gave them their old stockpile of guns, the British and the Swiss sold them anti-aircraft <laughs> guns. Uh, China provided kind of more modern weapons to them. Yeah, I mean, they're getting guns from all over the place. Britain, I do want to call out, 
Shout out to Britain, (laughs) aiming more directly. They had the MI6. Oh, yeah. James Bond. What did he do? Well, they were actually sending in retired uh, SAS troops, special air service, like secret, like commando type guys. Mm, Yeah. uh, As working with these private security firms to train Mujahideen fighters in sabotage and recon and arson, explosives, all this stuff. Uh, They also helped train Afghan commandos in British bases, not only in Oman, like overseas, but also in Britain itself. They disguised them (gasps) as tourists and brought them there to train. (laughs) Wow, that's hilarious. I'm like picturing the photos they had to stage. Like, all right, everyone stand in front of Big Ben. (laughs) Everyone say terrorism. Yeah. Uh, Furthermore, Uh, they also played a big role in intercepting Soviet... uh, communications and translating those and relaying those to the Mujahideen as well. Wow. 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 Okay. So again, while there are domestic roots to this and a lot of what the communist government was doing was unpopular and was rubbing people the wrong way and whatever. I mean, it might not have been as unpopular as like the hordes of enemy troops like would lead you to believe. (laughs) It did not have to escalate in this fashion and it did not have to lead to, you know, Obviously, what it led to. Yeah, not as many people had to die. Yeah, yeah, that's insane. Well, maybe they're just, you know, they're just defending themselves. Like you said, the media portrays it as the freedom fighters and all that. They did not only defend themselves. The Mujahideen also did raids as far as 10 miles inside the borders of the Soviet Union. (laughs) Good defending. In 1985, uh, on the encouragement, I will say, from CIA Director William Casey. Okay, great, great. He said, why don't y'all go do this? And they did it. (laughs) Check it out. I already made you a battle plan. See what you think. (laughs) I made sandwiches. (laughs) So, yeah. Wow. Oh, also, I know that sometimes you think this like, well, these are the, this is the perils of government, you know, but if we just had more private charity and stuff, (laughs) this sort of thing wouldn't happen. always thinking that. You're right. You're right. Yeah. I read this one source, uh, Jason Burke's work about al-Qaeda says al-Qaeda casting a shadow of terror that said that as little as 25% of the money sent to the Mujahideen was directly supplied by states, which is all the money we've been talking about so far. Like multiply that because that would be all the private money, religious charities and private (gasps) donations that we're giving to this. No. Saudi Arabia was bringing in at its peak $20 million a month. Oh, my God. And th- this is just by rich people there that were like, mm-hmm. yeah, let's keep this thing going. I don't want communism around here. Mm-hmm. Oh, hachi Okay, that's rough. That's rough stuff. All right. Now we get to the war itself. Oh, fast forward. Well, yeah, that's what we'll do. Yeah. <laughs> so the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan, long, bloody war, like we said, fueled by American imperialism and other powers, too. Uh, reactionary warlords and... Also, the ineptitude um, of the Soviet Union in terms of carrying this out. The first phase sees Soviet troops quickly take control of major cities and military bases. Okay. Uh, I mean, they roll in through the north, through two separate quarters. They meet in Kabul, and they also do like an airdrop thing, too. And they take over the major towns and the travel corridors between them. Uh, This, of course, like we said, pisses off the country, eggs on the rebellion. Um, and this draws Soviet troops into having to quell uprisings rather than what they thought they were going to do, 
which was just kind of like provide kind of a backbone, a support for the Afghan military, similar to the later experience of the United States when they're like, <laughs> oh, we're just here to help the Afghan military. But they actually end up doing most of the fighting. Yeah, because, like, if most of the opposition was in the countryside, if you go take over the cities, it's like, cool, we already, like, we're fine. <laughs> like, yes. you didn't, we didn't need help with that. Yeah. So now you're fighting, like, you know, country guerrilla war stuff out there. Mm-hmm. That's not good. Attacks on the Soviet troops uh, become more and more common. There's a big uprising, February 22nd, 1980, called the Three Hoot Uprising. And student protests uh, break out in Kabul in 1980 as well. And government and Soviet troops go to put down both of those. Mm, I bet that wasn't a good look. No. Uh, the Afghan government goes and blames foreign agents for stirring this up. And, I, you know, I mean, this could have been involved. But I think as unpopular as they were at that point, it could have just as easily been for real. And either way, it ends up, you know, really putting a dent in the already pretty banged up reputation that <laughs> Karmal's government has by that point. Yeah, I mean, the end result is everyone fucking hates you. Like, right. Yeah. yeah. So as the war progresses, you know, here's our military history. We're just going big, broad strokes here. <laughs> yeah. But as the war progresses, the Soviets occupy the cities and the corridors again. By 1985, there were almost 108,000 Soviet troops in Afghanistan. The Mujahideen groups were waging guerrilla war. Almost 80% of the country was out of government control. And some interesting parallels occurred to me reading through this sort of stuff. Soviet strategies against the rebellion, for one, they had intimidation. So they could bomb, they could use tanks to destroy villages, uh, livestock crops in Mujahideen strongholds. Oh, okay. That's not good. If you recall, Americans torching Vietnamese villages to say, well, you know, the NLF isn't going to be here. You know, it's similar or like even before you have huge America presence with Nagoda and ZM and the strategic Hamlet program of just like, you know, destroying their old villages and saying, Hey, you have to move here. They didn't even do that second part. They just like destroyed the villages. Oh, fuck. That's not good. They also sent in spies to join the Mujahideen groups and bribed local officials uh, local leaders, Mujahideen leaders, into into kind of giving up the rebellion. And they used, uh, in particular, they used the Afghan secret police, the KHAD. So similar to that kind of infiltration or counterinsurgency program, the United States used the Phoenix program in, in Vietnam. Uh, probably, well, I don't know. I did not read accounts of like, oh, they were very brutal in doing that. But they probably were honest. It was war. You know, I mean, so. yeah, they're burning villages. So far, not good. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past them. They also used basically search and destroy missions to find and kill guerrillas, um, similar to how the U.S. did in Vietnam for a long time. I guess it's a lesson in not doing, <laughs> not doing foreign interventions because you usually have to do shitty stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I am not for any of this. I want to make that clear. If someone thinks we're completely biased towards the Soviet Union, like, sure, but I'm not, I do not condone this. Yeah, uh, we've said it before, don't have heroes. Um, <laughs> good example here. This is also the late Soviet Union, which is, uh, you know, a horse of a different color, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. This is initially Brezhnev, and then it goes on to... Andropov and 
Konstantin Chernenko, and then it's Gorbachev. Okay. Um, just in case my mic picks it up, listeners, I have a cat on my shoulder mm. and he's purring. It's oh. very nice. Oh. He's, he sensed my distress over this. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, comrade. Some people make mistakes. Soviet intervention can't hurt you. <laughs> it's in the past. <laughs> okay, so that's kind of how the war front was going on the home front. Uh, Karmal's administration was really trying to do some PR some and also some reforms to try to make people not hate him as much. He puts forward a constitution called the Fundamental Principles of the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. So a new constitution. April 1980, he guarantees freedom of expression, uh, forbids torture, and forms a government that includes non-communists. I mean, seems like basic stuff to have in your constitution. Like, maybe you should have had that sooner, but okay. <laughs> yeah, probably. People by this point really don't buy it he's to them he's still the guy that called in a foreign army which they're also because they also have foreign help but it's Mm -hmm. you know one at least is mostly backed by money if you take the foreign fighters that is actually a very some people like to overemphasize that that's very that's a very small part of the mujahideen force yeah it's mostly the money yeah it's mostly the money in the arms you know that's that's the big thing i do want to which is big trying to be fair here you know we're biased but <laughs> <laughs> we try so the war drags on year after year and it's brutal it's got all the inhumanity of war we can't just brush past it we don't need to dwell on it in terms of gruesomeness but there's for sure brutality on both sides oh, just a little example there's accounts by human rights watch which people sometimes raise questions as to oh is this kind of like pro-us bias as a source, but there's accounts by them from eyewitnesses, which also has its thing, but still of massacres um, committed by the Soviet army. And there's a number of them. And most of them kind of follow a story arc of kind of retribution. Uh, they get ambushed in some way. They, they go to the nearby village that they think is harboring the Mujahideen that hi- are hiding from them. They say, Oh no, we're not, you know, but then they get caught in the lie and they, you know, they start killing people to a very, you know, varying degrees of awfulness. Uh, there's enough of the accounts. I don't know. To me, there, there's enough there. Maybe they are all, are all made up. Maybe they're all true. I, I think there's enough to where it's shitty. Yeah. I mean, the other stuff was also enough to where it's shitty. So, like, yeah. Yeah. Both sides engaged in brutality. One example of the Mujahideen uh, is the Battle of Halalabad. They get this contingent of government troops and civilians to surrender uh, but then they just start torturing and executing them holy crap okay not good yeah so uh typical terrible war stuff the war is it goes on for a long time and eventually the leaders of the soviet union realize hey (laughs) we need a way out this is not ending And they try to do so in a way that leaves the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan able to defend itself. But I do think that when we look at how they leave, it kind of shows that they were, yeah, they were trying to help help out Afghanistan on the way out, but they were mainly on the way out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they were like, oh, we got some problems. It's like the 80s. And we're the Soviet Union. (laughs) You don't know this yet. (laughs) They did not know that. (laughs) (laughs) For one, the casualties were mounting. Another thing. It's incredibly, incredibly expensive. It's really straining their economy. Like you mentioned, it's the 80s in the Soviet Union. They are struggling. And this is, you know, part of this is deliberate. The United States has been trying partially, 
you know, the whole bleed them thing was to try Ugh. to get them to outspend their capacity, to stretch them too thin. That is maniacal. It is. But on the other hand, like, don't go biting, you know, <laughs> no, don't fall for it. <laughs> don't. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Like this, this whole thing is just a bad decision after bad decision. <laughs> but you're right. It is maniacal. Um, they also realized by this point that in so many years, the PDPA regime has not improved its position that much. And it's likely not going to do so, uh, you know, given more time, you know, they've already given it by this point, um, seven years, you know, like what's another seven years going to do. And there's also the fact that the leadership in the Soviet union had changed. So now instead of Leonid Brezhnev, who was really old at the time and really listening to his advisors, that's when they get started, uh, to Yuri Andropov, uh, to Chernenko. Now you have a new, a younger reformer in Mikhail Gorbachev. He's general secretary. He thinks the war needs to be brought to a close and fast. I mean, he's not wrong. <laughs> I don't think he was wrong here. The Politburo didn't think he was wrong. They agreed and they put together the plans to do it. There was a lot of hand wringing. There was a lot of finger pointing. But they, you know, in, in their private meetings, you know, in the, in the Politburo notes and stuff, you can go back and read. And these guys, like, talk shit about each other. And they were like, hey, you know, we don't need you whining about this. You're the motherfucker got us into this. You know, they, they get into it. But they kind of at this point realize we got to do something. I wonder, too, like, I've wondered this about the United States and Afghanistan. Like, I wonder how much of a sunk cost fallacy is going on with some people, you know, like, oh, yeah. you know, just the idea of, of pride and not wanting to be like, yeah, we fucked up. Like, we have to go, right. <laughs> go tell everyone we fucked up. Our soldiers died in vain. What did we do? You know, all this stuff. And that's a big deal to them, too. They were they were talking about that. They sent out a letter to all the party members once they you know were publicly undergoing the the withdrawal and just told them, hey, look, we made these mistakes. I, so there was a great line from this, and they talk about their troops continuing to die in Afghanistan. The situation developed, which made any way out more and more difficult as the time passed. Combat action is combat action. Our losses in dead and wounded and the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union believes it has no right to hide this. We're growing and becoming more and more heavy. They talk about the, the combat losses uh, altogether. By the beginning of May 1988, we lost 13,000 people dead in Afghanistan. 35,000 Soviet officers and soldiers were wounded, many of whom had become disabled. 301 people missing in action. There is a reason that people say that each person is a unique world. And when a person dies, that world disappears forever. The loss of every person is very hard and irreparable, and it's hard and sacred if one dies carrying out one's duty. Wow, I love that thing about everyone's their own world. That's that's so good. Yeah, and this whole this letter was, you know, I mean, it, you, you can tell like how fucking hard it was for them to come to grips with that or whatever. And you know, there's the other side of the coin, like they shouldn't have done it. But yeah, but like, can you imagine like the United States admitting <laughs> they fucked up like even once? Yeah. That would <laughs> <laughs> that would be crazy. That's the famous quote from George H.W. Bush. I'll never apologize for America. <laughs> never. I don't care what it is. I don't care what the facts are, I think he says. I don't care what the facts are. That's great. That should be on his tombstone. <laughs> they they kind of come to grips with it and say, okay, we got to do something. We got to withdraw. So one part of the plan for getting this all together is to boost up Afghan 
government armed forces so that they can defend themselves. And they do that. They do some more recruitment. They get their official on paper strength up to 300,000, but <laughs> they still have a ton of desertions. So it's not like great. Uh, it's, it's, it's looking shaky. Another part of the change is going to be the leadership. By now, they're very annoyed with, with Carmel about his, his leadership. They're just like that, you know, you weren't <laughs> great. Sorry, dude. And they just force him to resign. And uh, they replace him with a guy named Muhammad Najibullah, who was the former head of the KHAD secret police. Mm, I don't love that. Uh, yeah, he was very efficient, but <laughs> efficient at what? Maybe the question. Yeah, that's the kindest review you could give a secret police head. <laughs> efficient. <laughs> yeah. He ends up trying to change things by being more lenient. A surprising turn for him. Mm, uh, okay. <laughs> he does more religious things. Uh, he releases a lot of prisoners. He lifts a night curfew in Kabul and eventually starts this national reconciliation program, trying to negotiate with the Mujahideen, allows other political parties, and also allows businesses to come back and take their properties if they want, which is kind of gross. Um, that is gross. <laughs> he also puts together a new constitution that makes Islam the official religion. Okay. Uh, and also removes all references to communism. Making some changes. All right. <laughs> the desire for one step forward, three leaps back, maybe. Yeah, that's rough. They end up having elections in 1988 for parliament. The Mujahideen boycott the elections and the government leaves like 50 seats open in case they want to come back. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's kind of like their first elections in a long while. Ultimately, it's interesting because... He is able to sort of stabilize things to where the government isn't in a free fall. Yeah, at least in the cities. Yeah, they have more control over where they are and they don't, they're not like falling apart right then and there. The Soviets, meanwhile, are, are moving on ahead with their withdrawal plan. They start limiting their troops to defensive operations. By mid 1987, they publicly announce, hey, we are withdrawing, and they do that in two phases. The first half of their troops leave in mid-1988 and the second half in early 1989 with the last Soviet troops leaving February 15th, 1989. Only six months, right? Yeah. <laughs> that was a long six months. It I felt know. like yeah. nine years, <laughs> if I had to guess. Yeah. So that was the official end of their occupation, intervention, invasion, whatever you want to call it. At the end of the day, the death toll, start with, I think, who should matter most in this, the Afghan people, uh, 74,000 military killed on both sides, the Mujahideen and the government forces, 14,000 Soviets killed, civilians is a whole lot. The lowest estimate has 500,000. Holy crap. Which is way lower than the higher estimate of 2 million. I mean, once again, the low number is still not good. Yeah. Some three million wounded, five and a half million people made refugees. Because, I mean, they're burning villages and land and stuff. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah. And not to mention warlords are tearing through left and right, you know, doing the same thing. Like, you know, also not with the same firepower. They don't have, you know, they can't bomb you from the skies. But I wonder what their population distribution is like in terms of like city versus country. But it sounds like a lot of this was in the country. Yes. Yeah. There were, you know, like we said, uh, 80% of the population I think was rural in like the seventies at least. So 
probably not too far off. Wow. Okay. When the Soviets leave, the Afghan government holds on, surprisingly, way longer than people thought. It actually holds its own in a civil war against the Mujahideen once the Soviet troops leave. And the Soviet Union, China, and Iran all eventually end up kind of supporting some sort of a peaceful solution. Like, let's negotiate some sort of a government, some sort of a, you know, coalition between the existing government and bring the Mujahideen into that sort of thing, you know? Oh, wow. That's like, that'd be a big deal. Yeah. The United States and Pakistan both were opposed to that. Of course. They wanted to make sure that the Mujahideen had a military victory and took power. Jesus. Okay, great. So this stalemate continues. And again, the uh, Republic of Afghanistan keeps um, keeps itself afoot. Until the fall of the Soviet Union, which I was doing a little bit of reading for this, and it's just so crazy. We got to do its own episode on it. Oh, for sure. But without the Soviets um, providing any sort of economic support, the troops are gone, but they're still like helping them. You know, the government of Afghanistan ends up falling to the Mujahideen. It's December 1991 when the Soviet Union falls. And just the next year, April 1992, when Afghanistan falls. The coda to all this is the Mujahideen having captured Kabul are still seven separate groups. Um, and they fail to form their own government together and they start fighting each other. It's brutal stuff. Kabul's population falls from 2 million people to 500,000 over the course of four years as they're fighting each other. Holy shit. So they lose like three quarters of their population. Did I do the math on that right? Or no? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's correct. Oh my God. Dead or, or gone, you know, in, yeah. in refugees. And eventually, Pakistan's ISI are pretty upset that their main Mujahideen guy that they had backed failed to prove <laughs> to be the strongest kid on the playground. Oh, God. And so they start backing this new obscure militia movement called the Taliban. Oh, okay. Great. Taliban end up winning the civil war conquering Kabul and establishing the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan in September of 1996. Wow. 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 Just bad results all around. My review, not a good war. Not a lot of good wars out there, but this one pretty bad. (laughs) Yeah. I imagine that it's pretty, it's a pretty good honor to be in the top five wars for you. (laughs) I don't know if that exists. You have top five favorite war i don't think so i don't think i like any My of them top really. five wars are the class war the class war the class war the class <laughs> war and the class war i'll throw maybe like just the october revolution in there but yeah yeah that can be number five <laughs> i feel like a different person having researched all this and read about this for <laughs> two weeks yeah yeah come on out of your your research cave <laughs> let's let's wrap so, yeah, what are some conclusions or stuff you want to talk about about this? I, I think this is just so clearly illustrates the pitfalls of intervention mm-hmm. of what anti-communism can spiral out to and like have mm. obviously far reaching effects like the fucking Taliban came out of this. <laughs> yeah, like, we really played ourselves. <laughs> uh huh. We trained Osama bin Laden. We ended up. Pro, you know setting up a place for the taliban to take over 
And then we we did the same thing the Soviets try to do, which is occupy a very like difficult area to occupy, and we we did the same thing. The graveyard of empires, they call it. Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, usually I'm for the graveyard of empires because fuck empires, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Don't do interventions. That's a big lesson for sure. Yeah, and like. I, it was just very frustrating because it absolutely played into the public perception of like, well, we don't want to be controlled by the Soviet Union. And then guess who invades? Because <laughs> they'll kick your door in and they'll take your freedom away and kind of. They kind of did. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I don't want to ascribe evil intentions to them. They were, you know, I think they were trying to do what they thought would be good for the people there. They just weren't. Okay, so one of the big things for me, I think, they weren't in stride with what the people wanted there, which is can be a frustrating thing. But I think that that is where the importance or one thing that can save you from that is the mass line. I agree, like in theory, but I also like I found myself frustrated with like, well, if you're a marginalized group, like fucking tough, man, like you're just gonna have to wait. you know. <laughs> and uh, to me, and maybe this is naive, but like, I would do that, but also like pump out that like propaganda. And I don't mean like, I don't know, I think propaganda has a negative connotation, but education, you know, so that way people are like, oh, maybe it's cool if like women go to school. <laughs> you know, right. like you, you ha- I think you have to do both because I, I don't necessarily, especially at this time and at this place, like, I don't know if I trust people to be like on the up and up in terms of like people's rights. <laughs> and I would say exactly the same thing about the United States today. Like, we got an email from a trans listener who was like, hey, like, I, I don't think I would do well in a commune situation because, like, what if everyone decides that it's not okay to be trans and it's a democracy? So, like, what the fuck do I do? And, like, mm, yeah. I totally feel those concerns, too. Like, the the perils of democracy in terms of protections is that is necessarily could be in conflict with minority groups. That's true. I want to do an episode about democracy is what I'm saying. <laughs> we have to, because it's, it's something that I think about too. Yeah. Cause How do you crack that nut. People fuck up, you know, and people are not good. And you're right. It's not fair for someone to have to wait for people to not, not be as bigoted, you know? Yeah. And I don't know. And I, I think that's, you know, on the other side, I think that's the critique of, of a lot of communist movements is like, you know, the image of just like dude bros being like, yeah, I I want communism and they're less concerned with those issues. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Future up. (laughs) We have to figure out a way. We'll crack open a bottle of wine and figure out democracy. Yeah. It's going to happen. It's got to, yeah, there's got to be something because I don't know. It seems like if you're taking it kind of a cold analysis, look of it. It's not good for your revolutionary movement to be too far out ahead of what people want. Conversely, it's not too good. It's not good for your revolutionary movement to be behind what people want. You know, it's neither one of those are good. Yeah, the, I guess the Maoists call it commandism when you're too far out in front and tailism when you're too far behind. Mm, okay. You know, tailism, like you're, you're following, you're like, oh, let me wait and see what people want. And mm-hmm. you're actually behind them. You kind of assume that they're too stupid or not good enough, you know? Um, commandism is like you know, us, the dreamers and stuff. Like, Come on, like <laughs> do it today. And it's good, but like, it's kind of like you're getting out in front. I don't know. There's got to be the idealists 
being with the people but pushing the people. Yes. But even that is too slow for people who are really suffering. And like you're saying, like people who are facing persecution now. Another issue is, you know, I, one of my very first questions was that like, hey, are, are they were they developed enough at this time, industrially speaking, to do this? And I wouldn't even say like necessarily industrially, maybe like infrastructurally would be a better way to put it because the, the countryside was so disconnected from the city they weren't seeing those material benefits. So they couldn't associate that with, with like, all right, I'm seeing more women in schools, but like, also I own my own land and like, I have food and like, things are good. So like, maybe I'll just chill. And it's not like, it's not bad. It's not bringing about the cultural upheaval that I thought it was gonna. Exactly. That positive association of like, all right, this is fine. Apparently. It's like, yeah, it's like how a lot of people like decided you know it kind of dropped and forgot about those times when they were like oh gay marriage i don't know is <laughs> because like the world didn't end like all the conservatives told them it would you know it was fine <laughs> like mm-hmm. nothing really changed and they're like oh okay i guess i was i guess i was misguided <laughs> about that whoops i think also the religion issue i think you would have this issue in the united states as well it's it's you know i i this is a topic I would love to learn more about is the idea of how do you incorporate religion into socialism or communism in a way that is like respectful, but also not like a, like a doctrine or what's the word when you force people to do things. Dogmatic or dogmatic. That's it. That's good. Yeah. Cause I, I don't want to be a situation where it's like, well now you have to be, you know, you know, a Christian socialist or an Islamic socialist, like, fuck that, like, do whatever you want. Like, and it's very hard for me because like, I am like pretty dang hard in the (laughs) atheist agnostic camp. Like I'm very uncomfortable with organized religion. I try to be respectful and understand that like, okay, this is useful for some people, but I don't know. It's, it's the way religion is so often used is, is anti-communism. So it's very hard for me to see how we could possibly ever flip that. That's something I, also, we're just coming up with episodes, I think, because I really, I really <laughs> do want to do an episode on religion and like we, we could do different ones, I, I think is a better way to do it is mm-hmm. like Christian socialism, communism, anarchism, you know, and, and Islamic socialism and, and just kind of these different takes uh, in terms of like history and kind of what that angle would look like. Because I think there's a lot of resonance, especially like I said, in the United States from that point of view, you, we keep getting these headlines like fewer and fewer people are in organized religion and churches and stuff, sure, but so many people are religious in some way, you're like... And that's a huge spectrum, and, and same with like pretty much all religions, like you have people who take it literally, you have people who are like, yeah, this is, this is nice. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's, it, can be, it can be relatable, and in this case, in the Afghanistan case, it could have been relatable if they had had more of this Islamic back uh, backing and Islamic like grounding, you know, as part of their identity in such a predominantly Muslim country. Or at least like have that be part of your, even like your kind of rural outreach, like have the people from those areas, like have them involved in the process. And like, if you can get some of them on board, like you're good. Cause like, I think that was a huge issue is this kind of disparate system. And mm-hmm. if you could combine them both geographically and like socially or like religion wise, I think that'd be pretty big. Yeah, I agree. Have, have, have an outreach, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you need some good PR is what I'm saying. Yeah. 
Oh, one other big lesson. Try not to split your party. Oh, God, guys, I'm so tired of the Sino split. The Sino split, the Parcham and Kalk split, the cooing your own guys thing. Like, come on. <laughs> Smothering, betrayals yeah. at lunches. I'm never, if a comrade asks you out for lunch, double <laughs> Drink Coke, drink Coke. Drink, drink Coca-Cola, <laughs> the official drink of comrade lunches. <laughs> uh, just kidding, they do death squads. but They do do that, though. <laughs> A little give, a little take. <laughs> Prevent coups, do death squads. That's you know, <laughs> a good shirt. We should good with the. Bat. Oh my gosh, Coca Cola logo like swoopy type, but it it says like anti poison, anti labor. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or it just says let's do lunch. <laughs> let's do lunch. <laughs> um, oh, probably I get sued it. for that. Probably. Coca-Cola logos. I bet there's some shit out there. (laughs) (laughs) Fair use. If you change it enough, it's yours, right? Uh, I hope so. Sure. (laughs) Not a lawyer. (laughs) Okay. Um, You got anything else? I literally just updated the the episode doc, so. (laughs) No, that was all. Okay. What are we doing next week, though? Next week, uh, we'll be talking about... A few very well-known folk music acts from American history from way back when. Ooh. We talking some union hymns? Yeah, there will be plenty of union hymns. There will be plenty of good, uh, good way lefty songs out there uh, from such names as Pete Seeger, which everybody knows. Pete Seeger, uh, Woody Guthrie, uh, and a group that they formed uh, active around the, in the 1940s called the Almanac Singers. Okay, yeah, I think I've seen that book at your house. <laughs> yeah, they're super cool. They do, like you said, union hymns. They do all sorts of stuff. So we'll get into kind of what they did, their type of music, and just kind of, we'll have some clips and stuff too. It's it's great to hear this because this is like coming from, you know, you're like great or great great grandparents era <laughs> and they're singing about communism and unions and you're just like where is that now you know <laughs> yeah that american heritage that we don't learn about in terms of the left that's pretty cool mm-hmm. so it's great stuff i mean they're bops uh, we went to a mountain goat show recently and john darnielle let oh. us in solidarity forever so that was pretty sweet oh yeah that was an experience of a lifetime (laughs) shout out to the mountain goats for being down for the cause (laughs) oh yeah okay well that sounds exciting i can't wait i'm i'm looking forward to getting some new tunes stuck in my head hell yeah they're super catchy too like i think that (laughs) half of the strength of the unions at that time was due to catchy (laughs) catchy songs i'm telling you pr propaganda very important (laughs) (laughs) all right all right looking forward to it that'll be our little americana thanksgiving episode for for our u.s listeners at least yeah everyone else just like enjoy you know we also put out some good shit every once in a while (laughs) (laughs) some cool tunes at least yeah all right catch you later bye Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question. 
anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up and coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.